This is Marilyn Lightstone Reads the Age of Innocence, proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Now, without further ado, here is Marilyn to read us The Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton's 1920 Pulitzer Prize-winning masterpiece. Chapter 27 Wall Street, the next day, had more reassuring reports of Beaufort's situation. They were not definite, but they were hopeful. It was generally understood that he could call on powerful influences in case of emergency, and that he had done so with success. And that evening, when Mrs. Beaufort appeared at the opera, wearing her old smile and a new emerald necklace, society drew a breath of relief. New York was inexorable in its condemnation of business irregularities. So far, there had been no exception to its tacit rule that those who broke the law of probity must pay, and everyone was aware that even Beaufort and Beaufort's wife would be offered up unflinchingly to this principle. But to be obliged to offer them up would be not only painful but inconvenient. The disappearance of the Beauforts would leave a considerable void in their compact little circle, and those who were too ignorant or too careless to shudder at the moral catastrophe bewailed in advance the loss of the best ballroom in New York. Archer had definitely made up his mind to go to Washington. He was waiting only for the opening of the lawsuit of which he had spoken to May, so that its date might coincide with that of his visit. But on the following Tuesday, he learned from Mr. Letterblair that the case might be postponed for several weeks. Nevertheless, he went home that afternoon, determined in any event to leave the next evening. The chances were that May, who knew nothing of his professional life and had never shown any interest in it, would not learn of the postponement should it take place, nor remember the names of the litigants if they were mentioned before her, and at any rate he could no longer put off seeing Madame Oletska. There were too many things that he must say to her. On the Wednesday morning, when he reached his office, Mr. Letterblair met him with a troubled face. Beaufort, after all, had not managed to tide over, but by setting afloat the rumor that he had done so, he had reassured his depositors, and heavy payments had poured into the bank till the previous evening, when disturbing reports again began to predominate. In consequence, a run on the bank had begun and its doors were likely to close before the day was over. The ugliest things were being said of Beaufort's dastardly maneuver, and his failure promised to be one of the most discreditable in the history of Wall Street. The extent of the calamity left Mr. Letterblair white and incapacitated. I've seen bad things in my time, but nothing as bad as this. Everybody we know will be hit, one way or another. And what will be done about Mrs. Beaufort? What can be done about her? I pity Mrs. Manson Miggett as much as anybody. Coming at her age, there's no knowing what effect this affair may have on her. She always believed in Beaufort. She made a friend of him. 
and there's the whole Dallas connection. Poor Mrs. Beaufort is related to every one of you. Her only chance would be to leave her husband. Yet how can anyone tell her so? Her duty is at his side, and luckily she seems always to have been blind to his private weaknesses. There was a knock, and Mr. Letterblair turned his head sharply. What is it? I can't be disturbed. A clerk brought in a letter for Archer and withdrew. Recognizing his wife's hand, the young man opened the envelope and read, "'Won't you please come up town as early as you can? Granny had a slight stroke last night. In some mysterious way, she found out before anyone else this awful news about the bank. Uncle Lovell is away shooting, and the idea of the disgrace has made poor Papa so nervous that he has a temperature and can't leave his room.' Mamma needs you dreadfully, and I do hope you can get away at once and go straight to Granny's. Archer handed the note to his senior partner, and a few minutes later was crawling northward in a crowded horse car, which he exchanged at 14th Street for one of the high, staggering omnibuses of the Fifth Avenue line. It was after twelve o'clock when this laborious vehicle dropped him at Old Catherine's. The sitting-room window on the ground floor, where she usually throned, was tenanted by the inadequate figure of her daughter, Mrs. Welland, who signed a haggard welcome as she caught sight of Archer, and at the door he was met by May. The hall wore the unnatural appearance peculiar to well-kept houses suddenly invaded by illness. Wraps and furs lay in heaps on the chairs, a doctor's bag and overcoat were on the table, and beside them letters and cards had already piled up unheeded. May looked pale, but smiling. Dr. Bencombe, who had just come for the second time, took a more hopeful view, and Mrs. Mingott's dauntless determination to live and get well was already having an effect on her family. May led Archer into the old lady's sitting-room, where the sliding doors opening into the bedroom had been drawn shut, and the heavy yellow damask portiere dropped over them. And here Mrs. Welland communicated to him, in horrified undertones, the details of the catastrophe. It appeared that the evening before something dreadful and mysterious had happened. At about eight o'clock, just after Mrs. Mingott had finished the game of solitaire that she always played after dinner, the doorbell had rung, and a lady so thickly veiled that the servants did not immediately recognize her had asked to be received. The butler, hearing a familiar voice, had thrown open the sitting-room door, announcing, "'Mrs. Julius Beaufort,' and had then closed it again on the two ladies.' They must have been together, he thought, about an hour. When Mrs. Mingott's bell rang, Mrs. Beaufort had already slipped away, unseen, and the old lady, white and vast and terrible, sat alone in her great chair and signed to the butler to help her into the room. She seemed at that time, though obviously distressed, in complete control of her body and brain, the maid put her to bed, brought her a cup of tea as usual, laid everything straight in the room, and went away. But 
At three in the morning, the bell rang again, and the two servants hastening in at this unwonted summons, for old Catherine usually slept like a baby, had found their mistress sitting up against her pillows with a crooked smile on her face, and one little hand hanging limp from its huge arm. The stroke had clearly been a slight one, for she was able to articulate and to make her wishes known, and soon after the doctor's first visit she had begun to regain control of her facial muscles. But the alarm had been great, and proportionately great was the indignation when it was gathered from Mrs. Mingott's fragmentary phrases that Regina Beaufort had come to ask her, incredible effrontery, to back up her husband, see them through, not to desert them, as she called it, in fact, to induce the whole family to cover and condone their monstrous dishonor. I said to her, honors always win honor, and honesty, honesty, in Manson Mingott's house, and will be till I'm carried out of it feet first. The old woman had stammered into her daughter's ear, in the thick voice of the partly paralyzed, and when she said, but my name, Auntie, my name's Regina Dallas, I said, it was Beaufort when he covered you with jewels, and it's got to stay Beaufort now that he's covered you with shame. So much, with tears and gasps of horror, Mrs. Welland imparted, blanched and demolished by the unwonted obligation of having at last to fix her eyes on the unpleasant and the discreditable. If only I could keep it from your father-in-law. He always says, Augusta, for pity's sake, don't destroy my last illusions. And how am I to prevent his knowing these horrors? The poor lady wailed. After all, Mamma, he won't have seen them, her daughter suggested, and Mrs. Welland sighed. Ah, oh, no, thank heaven he's safe in bed, and Dr. Bencombe has promised to keep him there till poor Mamma's better, and Regina has been got away somewhere. Archer had seated himself near the window and was gazing out blankly at the deserted thoroughfare. It was evident that he had been summoned rather for the moral support of the stricken ladies than because of any specific aid that he could render. Mr. Lovell Mingott had been telegraphed for, and messages were being dispatched by hand to the members of the family living in New York, and meanwhile there was nothing to do but to discuss in hushed tones the consequences of Beaufort's dishonor and of his wife's unjustifiable action. Mrs. Lovell Mingott, who had been in another room writing notes, presently reappeared and added her voice to the discussion. In their day, the elder ladies agreed, the wife of a man who had done anything disgraceful in business had only one idea, to efface herself, to disappear with him. There was the case of poor Grandmama Spicer, your great-grandmother May. Of course, Mrs. Welland hastened to add, your great-grandfather's money difficulties were private. 
losses at cards or, or signing a note for somebody. I never quite knew, because Mama would never speak of it. But she was brought up in the country, because her mother had to leave New York after the disgrace, whatever it was. They lived up the Hudson alone, winter and summer, till Mama was sixteen. It would never have occurred to Grandmama Spicer to ask the family to countenance her, as I understand Regina calls it, though a private disgrace is nothing compared to the scandal of ruining hundreds of innocent people. Yes, it would be more becoming in Regina to hide her own countenance than to talk about other people's, Mrs. Lovell Mingott agreed. I understand that the emerald necklace she wore at the opera last Friday had been sent on approval from Ball and Blacks in the afternoon. I wonder if they'll ever get it back. Archer listened unmoved to the relentless chorus. The idea of absolute financial probity as the first law of a gentleman's code was too deeply ingrained in him for sentimental considerations to weaken it. An adventurer like Lemuel Struthers might build up the millions of his shoe polish on any number of shady dealings, but unblemished honesty was the noblesse oblige of old financial New York. Nor did Mrs. Beaufort's fate greatly move Archer. He felt, no doubt, more sorry for her than her indignant relatives, but it seemed to him that the tie between husband and wife— even if breakable in prosperity, should be indissoluble in misfortune. As Mr. Letterblair had said, a wife's place was at her husband's side when he was in trouble, but society's place was not at his side, and Mrs. Beaufort's cool assumption that it was seemed almost to make her his accomplice. The mere idea of a woman's appealing to her family to screen her husband's business dishonor was inadmissible, since it was the one thing that the family, as an institution, could not do. The maid called Mrs. Lovell Mingott into the hall, and the latter came back in a moment with a frowning brow. She wants me to telegraph for Ellen Olenska. I had written to Ellen, of course, and to Medora, but now it seems that's not enough. I'm to telegraph to her immediately and to tell her that she's to come alone. The announcement was received in silence. Mrs. Welland sighed resignedly, and May rose from her seat and went to gather up some newspapers that had been scattered on the floor. I suppose it must be done. Mrs. Lovell Mingott continued, as if hoping to be contradicted, and May turned back toward the middle of the room. "'Of course it must be done,' she said. "'Granny knows what she wants, and we must carry out all her wishes. "'Shall I write the telegram for you, Auntie? "'If it goes at once, Ellen can probably catch tomorrow's train.' She pronounced the syllables of the name with a peculiar clearness, as if she had tapped on two silver bells. Well, it can't go at once. Jasper and the pantry boy are both out with notes and telegrams. May turned to her husband with a smile. But here's Newland, ready to do anything. Will you take the telegram, Newland? There'll be just time before luncheon. Archer rose with a murmur of readiness. 
and she seated herself at old Catherine's rosewood banner du jour and wrote out the message in her large, immature hand. When it was written, she blotted it neatly and handed it to Archer. "'What a pity,' she said, "'that you and Ellen will cross each other on the way. "'Newland,' she added, turning to her mother and aunt, "'is obliged to go to Washington about a patent lawsuit "'that is coming up before the Supreme Court. "'I suppose Uncle Lovell will be back by tomorrow night, "'and with Granny improving so much, "'it doesn't seem right to ask Newland "'to give up an important engagement for the firm, does it?' "'She paused, as if for an answer.' and Mrs. Welland hastily declared, "'Oh, of course not, darling. Your granny would be the last person to wish it.' As Archer left the room with the telegram, he heard his mother-in-law add, presumably to Mrs. Lovell Mingott, "'But why on earth she should make you telegraph for Eleanor Lenska?' And May's clear voice rejoined, "'Perhaps it's to urge on her again that, after all, her duty is with her husband.' The outer door closed on Archer, and he walked hastily away toward the telegraph office. Chapter 28 Ol, ol, how'd you spell it anyhow? asked the tart young lady, to whom Archer had pushed his wife's telegram across the brass ledge of the Western Union office. Olenska, O. Lenska, he repeated, drawing back the message in order to print out the foreign syllables above May's rambling script. Oh, it's an unlikely name for a New York telegraph office, at least in this quarter, an unexpected voice observed, and turning around, Archer saw Lawrence Lefferts at his elbow, pulling an imperturbable moustache and affecting not to glance at the message. Hello, Newland. Thought I'd catch you here. I've just heard of old Mrs. Mingott's stroke, and as I was on my way to the house, I saw you turning down this street and nipped after you. I suppose you've come from there? Archer nodded and pushed his telegram under the lattice. Very bad, eh? Mm hmm. Lefferts continued. Wiring to the family, I suppose. Mm. I gather it is bad if you're including Countess Olenska. Archer's lips stiffened. He felt a savage impulse to dash his fist into the long, vain, handsome face at his side. Why? he questioned. Lefferts, who was known to shrink from discussion, raised his eyebrows with an ironic grimace that warned the other of the watching damsel behind the lattice. Nothing could be worse form, the look reminded Archer, than any display of temper in a public place. Archer had never been more indifferent to the requirements of form, but his impulse to do Lawrence Lafferts a physical injury was only momentary. The idea of bandying Ellen Olenska's name with him at such a time, and on whatsoever provocation, was unthinkable. He paid for his telegram, and the two young men went out together into the street. There, Archer, having regained his self-control, went on. Mrs. Minkett is much better. The doctor feels no anxiety whatsoever. And Lefferts, with profuse expressions of relief, 
asked him if he had heard that there were beastly bad rumors again about Beaufort. That afternoon, the announcement of the Beaufort failure was in all the papers. It overshadowed the report of Mrs. Manson Mingott's stroke, and only the few who had heard of the mysterious connection between the two events thought of ascribing old Catherine's illness to anything but the accumulation of flesh and years. The whole of New York was darkened by the tale of Beaufort's dishonor. There had never as Mr. Letter Blair said, been a worse case in his memory, nor, for that matter, in the memory of the far-off Letter Blair, who had given his name to the firm. The bank had continued to take in money for a whole day after its failure was inevitable, and as many of its clients belonged to one or another of the ruling clans, Beaufort's duplicity seemed doubly cynical. If Mrs. Beaufort had not taken the tone that such misfortunes—the word was her own—were the test of friendship, compassion for her might have tempered the general indignation against her husband. As it was, and especially after the object of her nocturnal visit to Mrs. Manson Mingott had become known, her cynicism was held to exceed his, and she had not the excuse— nor her detractors the satisfaction of pleading that she was a foreigner. It was some comfort, to those whose securities were not in jeopardy, to be able to remind themselves that Beaufort was, but, after all, if Dallas of South Carolina took his view of the case, and glibly talked of his soon being on his feet again, the argument lost its edge, and there was nothing to do but to accept this awful evidence of the indissolubility of marriage. Society must manage to get on without the Beauforts, and there was an end of it, except, indeed, for such hapless victims of the disaster as Medora Manson, the poor old Miss Lannings, and certain other misguided ladies of good family, who, if only they had listened to Mr. Henry Vanderdoyden, oh— the best thing the Beauforts can do, said Mrs. Archer, summing it up as if she were pronouncing a diagnosis and prescribing a course of treatment, is to go and live at Regina's little place in North Carolina. Beaufort has always kept a racing stable, and he had better breed trotting horses. I should say he had all the qualities of a successful horse dealer. Everyone agreed with her but no one condescended to inquire what the Beauforts really meant to do. The next day, Mrs. Manson Mingott was much better. She recovered her voice sufficiently to give orders that no one should mention the Beauforts to her again, and asked, when Dr. Bencombe appeared, what in the world her family meant by making such a fuss about her health. If people of my age will eat chicken salad in the evening, what are they to expect? She inquired, and the doctor, having opportunely modified her dietary, the stroke was transformed into an attack of indigestion. But in spite of her firm tone, old Catherine did not wholly recover her former attitude towards life. The growing remoteness of old age, though it had not diminished her curiosity about her neighbors, 
had blunted her never very lively compassion for their troubles, and she seemed to have no difficulty in putting the Beaufort disaster out of her mind. But for the first time, she became absorbed in her own symptoms and began to take a sentimental interest in certain members of her family to whom she had hitherto been contemptuously indifferent. Mr. Welland, in particular, had the privilege of attracting her notice. Of her sons-in-law, he was the one she had most consistently ignored, and all his wife's efforts to represent him as a man of forceful character and marked intellectual ability, if he had only chosen, had been met with a derisive chuckle. But his eminence as a valetudinarian now made him an object of engrossing interest, and Mrs. Mingott issued an imperial summons to him to come and compare diets as soon as his temperature permitted, for old Catherine was now the first to recognize that one could not be too careful about temperatures. Twenty-four hours after Madame Olenska's summons, a telegram announced that she would arrive from Washington on the evening of the following day. At the Wellens, where the Newland archers chanced to be lunching, the question as to who should meet her at Jersey City was immediately raised, and the material difficulties amid which the Welland household struggled as if it had been a frontier outpost lent animation to the debate. It was agreed that Mrs. Welland could not possibly go to Jersey City because she was to accompany her husband to Old Catherine's that afternoon, and the brougham could not be spared, since if Mr. Welland were upset by seeing his mother-in-law for the first time after her attack, he might have to be taken home at a moment's notice. The Welland sons would, of course, be downtown— Mr. Lovell Mingott would be just hurrying back from his shooting, and the Mingott carriage engaged in meeting him, and one could not ask May, at the close of a winter afternoon, to go alone across the ferry to Jersey City, even in her own carriage. Nevertheless, it might appear inhospitable, and contrary to old Catherine's express wishes, if Madame Olenska were allowed to arrive without any of the family being at the station to receive her. It was just like Ellen, Mrs. Welland's tired voice implied, to place the family in such a dilemma. It's always one thing after another, the poor lady grieved, in one of her rare revolts against fate. The only thing that makes me think Mamma must be less well than Dr. Bencombe will admit is this morbid desire to have Ellen come at once, however inconvenient it is to meet her. The words had been thoughtless, as the utterances of impatience often are, and Mr. Welland was upon them with a pounce. Augusta, he said, turning pale and laying down his fork. Have you any other reason for thinking that Bencombe is less to be relied on than he was? Have you noticed that he has been less conscientious than usual in following up my case or your mother's? It was Mrs. Welland's turn to grow pale as the endless consequences of her blunder unrolled themselves before her, but she managed to laugh and take a second helping of scalloped oysters before she said, struggling back into her old armor of cheerfulness, 
My dear, how could you imagine such a thing? I only meant that after the decided stand Mamma took about it being Ellen's duty to go back to her husband, it seems strange that she should be seized with this sudden whim to see her, when there are half a dozen other grandchildren that she might have asked for. But we must never forget that Mamma, in spite of her wonderful vitality, is a very old woman. Mr. Welland's brow remained clouded and it was evident that his perturbed imagination had fastened at once on this last remark. Yes, your mother's a very old woman, and for all we know, Benka may not be as successful with very old people. As you say, my dear, it's always one thing after another, and in another ten or fifteen years, I suppose I shall have the pleasing duty of looking about for a new doctor. It's always better to make such a change before it's absolutely necessary. And having arrived at this Spartan decision, Mr. Welland firmly took up his fork. But all the while, Mrs. Welland began again, as she rose from the luncheon table and led the way into the wilderness of purple satin and malachite known as the back drawing-room, I don't see how Ellen's to be got here tomorrow evening, and I do like to have things settled for at least twenty-four hours ahead. Archer turned from the fascinated contemplation of a small painting representing two cardinals carousing in an octagonal ebony frame set with medallions of onyx. Shall I fetch her? he proposed. I can easily get away from the office in time to meet the brougham at the ferry, if May will send it there. His heart was beating excitedly as he spoke. Mrs. Welland heaved a sigh of gratitude, and May, who had moved away to the window, turned to shed on him a beam of approval. So you see, Mamma, everything will be settled twenty-four hours in advance, she said, stooping over to kiss her mother's troubled forehead. May's brougham awaited her at the door and she was to drive Archer to Union Square, where he could pick up a Broadway car to carry him to his office. As she settled herself in her corner, she said, I didn't want to worry Mamma by raising fresh obstacles, but how can you meet Ellen tomorrow and bring her back to New York when you're going to Washington? Oh, I'm not going, Archer answered. Not going? Why, why what's happened? Her voice was as clear as a bell, and full of wifely solicitude. The case is off. Postponed. Uh, postponed? How odd. I saw a note this morning from Mr. Letterbear to Mamma saying that he was going to Washington tomorrow for the big patent case that he was to argue before the Supreme Court. You, you did say it was a patent case, didn't you? Well, th that's it. The whole office can't go. Letterblair decided to go this morning. Oh, then it's, then it's not postponed, she continued, with an insistence so unlike her that he felt the blood rising to his face, as if he were blushing for her unwonted lapse from all the traditional delicacies. No, but my going is, he answered, cursing the unnecessary explanations that he had given when he had announced his intention of going to Washington, and wondering where he had read that clever liars give details, but that the cleverest do not. 
it did not hurt him half as much to tell me an untruth as to see her trying to pretend that she had not detected him. I'm not going till later on. Luckily, for the convenience of your family, he continued, taking base refuge in sarcasm. As he spoke, he felt that she was looking at him, and he turned his eyes to hers in order not to appear to be avoiding them. Their glances met for a second, and perhaps let them into each other's meanings more deeply than either cared to go. Yes, it is awfully convenient, May brightly agreed, that you should be able to meet Ellen after all. You saw how much Mamma appreciated your offering to do it. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to do it. The carriage stopped, and as he jumped out, she leaned to him and laid her hand on his. "'Good-bye, dearest,' she said, her eyes so blue that he wondered afterward if they had shone on him through tears. He turned away and hurried across Union Square, repeating to himself in a sort of inward chant, "'It's all of two hours from Jersey City to Old Catherine's. It's all of two hours, and it may be more.'" Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Age of Innocence. This episode was produced by Justin Ecock, executive producer Moses Zneimer. This is our fourth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn reading Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol, if you haven't already. Also, you can support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.